0: Welcome to Michael and Us. I'm Will Sloan. Here as always with.
1: Hey everyone, Luke Savage here.
0: Another week, another contender. Who joined the race this week?
1: Oh, it's our friend of the friend of the show, uh, Robert, uh, or Beto to his friends, O'Rourke. You're a big fan. I'm a big fan. I mean, a
0: few months ago, I think everyone was a big fan, not you. Uh,
1: <laughs>
0: Beto was famously the man who almost delivered Texas to the Democrats for the first
1: time in generations. Yeah, well, one one of the Senate seats in Texas, and uh, there's actually another one. The, the non-Ted Cruz seat is opening up uh, in a few years, but uh, Beto didn't want to do that because... Um, bunch of Beltway people have been, you know, whispering in his ear and sort of seeding it in the media that he's this preternaturally gifted figure. Who he's has, got a bit of that Obama he's magic. Got, he got, he's got a destiny. And don't take our word for it that he's got a destiny. Another friend of the show, Robert Wolf, a former top executive at UBS Investment Bank. Also happens to be a Democratic mega donor. He says, uh, Beto's game changing. If he decides to run, he will be in the top five. You can't deny the electricity and excitement around the guy. Or um, Matt Bennett, uh, who uh, is at the aptly named Third Way Think Tank. He says, We are big Beto fans. He's not with us on every single thing but his, his main campaign themes have been very close to what we think a national narrative should be. What's he not and, with them and on? And the happy warrior approach is just right for running against a horrible person like Cruz or Trump. I don't know. They think he's like too radical or something. So that's the Clintonite think tank. And then there's Dan P-P-P-P- Dan <laughs> sorry. Dan Triple P- <laughs> Then there's Dan the of of the the pod the What is it? Pod pod? Save America. Oh, you know what it is. (laughs) Actually, it took me. It took me.
0: I mean, listen. We 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 are a member (laughs) of the Crooked Media Network. (laughs) That's that's right.
1: So yeah, we're gonna get a call from management. he said he had never seen a Senate candidate, including Obama in 2004, inspire the sort of enthusiasm Beto did in this race, that being the Senate race. Uh, this is mo- about more than LeBron wearing a Beto hat or Beyonce sporting one on Instagram. It's about the people all over the country with no connection to Texas, with signs in the yards and stickers in the cars. Millions of people already believe in Beto O'Rourke, and that moment for them and him may be upon us. So I don't know those are some pretty big names and they've got they got a lot good to say about Beta Wehrwark. I'm a politically curious guy. I'm a bit of a political junkie. Naturally, I I wanted to know who this guy was that everybody was was talking so much about. So I read The Vanity Fair profile and I and I guess you did too photographed by Annie Leibovitz.
0: A few months ago when Beatomania was in full force i think one of the ways that he was kind of sold was this is a guy who not only is he a democrat in texas but he's a progressive democrat mm. most democrats are in texas are running on this this campaign of well listen you know i'll stand up to obama uh but this guy was unapologetic uh-huh. and he was also up against ted cruz who everyone hates mm-hmm. even republicans hate ted cruz Uh, But then afterwards, people started looking at his record, and he is actually to the right of most people in his district. Well,
1: his his district is actually... I think it's something like 17 points more Democratic leaning than the average congressional district. Mm-hmm. He decidedly does not sit; or did not sit in the Progressive Caucus. He sat in a kind of more third-way-ish one.
0: He seemed to go from this very popular figure, th- this possible successor to Obama, to a bit of a joke in, in record time among, among certain some, people. Some,
1: some people, yeah. I mean, you say he's a joke, but uh, I look at the Vanity Fair profile and I read passages like this one and I'm pretty impressed. Behind the oral in the O'Rourke living room a to ceiling bookshelf contains a section for rock memoirs Bob Dylan's Chronicles a favorite and a stack of <laughs> and a stack of piece the clash Nina Simone but also a sizable collection of presidential biographies including Robert Caro's work on Lyndon B Johnson arranged in historical order the biography suggests there's been some reflection on the gravity of the presidency but there's also some political poetry to it a sense that O'Rourke might be destined for this shelf he has an aura
0: where most politicians get busy, this politician gets busy. a
1: Now, uh, you might be wondering, uh, well, Beto seems pretty cool. And I agree. Uh, and to that end, here's another great quote from the article. Promising to visit every county in Texas, he ran his campaign as a marathon of livestream political performance art, road tripping with a Republican congressman with an iPhone on his dashboard for 36 hours, air drumming to The Who's Bubba O'Reilly while waiting for burgers at a drive-through the night he debated Ted Cruz at Southern Methodist University. O'Rourke came off as free of political calculation as if his charisma were a mere side effect of Beto just being Beto
0: well, you know elsewhere in the article it talks about some of his uh, social media stuff mm-hmm. like for example the, the time when he live streamed his dentist appointment i think uh-huh. which was you know him being inspired by aoc i guess right his social
1: media savvy which of course
0: that was roundly mocked and this article <laughs> i don't have it up in front yeah. of me like you do but didn't it
1: say something yeah, like this was, it, was it, was taken, t- <laughs> it was taken out of context taken out of context Yeah, well there was no
0: context
1: well i do i do think something like this is sort of a like a political phenomenon like this is sort of a a weirdo centrist response to aoc and and to things like her because they don't get it maybe we've talked about this before but they think she's discovered some special hack where you can live stream making noodles in your kitchen because it's it's relatable and, right and like yeah. that's it they're unable to understand that there's an ideological dimension to this right and that
0: making noodles in your kitchen is not the same thing as going to the orthodontist <laughs> right fair fair point. <laughs> Also, wasn't Bill Clinton the guy who who loved rock music? Were people writing stuff yeah, like I mean, that about both, him at the time? Not, I mean, we've we've done this,
1: right? I mean, yeah, yeah the first president <laughs> from the rock and roll generation. Uh, it's like a relaunch of a you know f- an old franchise or something. That's mm-hmm. what this is. But what I like about this profile is how long it takes to get to anything even approaching you know actual politics or or belief. I think it goes over that you know relatively quickly. So he's. He likes the Green New Deal in spirit, but not into the letter. He says, the goal is great. I love it. It's ambitious. It captures your imagination. Great insight. He sort of vaguely supports uh, higher marginal taxes. It's not clear what.
0: He likes things as a branding exercise. Well, that
1: does seem to kind of be what it is. And and the person writing the profile, with all due respect, seems to think that that's a virtue and kind of revels in it. I I just have to read the final sentence of the article because, I mean, this is incredible. uh, The, the final line of the article is, I want to be in it, he says, now leading forward. Man, I'm just born to be in it, and I want to do everything I humanly can for this country at this moment. Anyway, this this breathless uh, profile kind of goes on about authenticity and honesty, but it's not clear, like, authenticity and honesty for what, about what. And I don't know, We'll we'll see how this goes. I find it very hard to believe that there's any kind of appetite for this, that there's a real political constituency for it, that it's not just kind of going to get dashed on the rocks of kind of cold, hard reality. But who knows, I could be wrong. Maybe there is actually no appetite for, you know, social democratic policies within the Democratic Party. Maybe, maybe the elites really can just press the reset button and make the Trump bogeyman go away. And, uh, and in a few years, you know, maybe when President Beto has, you know, reinitiated the blockade of Yemen, uh, <laughs> but, he's, but he's doing tricks in the half pipe while wearing shades, uh, guys like you and me will be back to being irrelevant again. I assume his path to victory is to, to be Justin Trudeau. Yeah. I mean, th- this is the thing. And I mean, it feels like a cliche to point out, but I mean, we've, we've done this in Canada. We've right. done the post Obama, culturally new, new, liberal, new young leader, culturally liberal, very, very vague sort of progressive gestures, but n- no real content. And charismatic in that with a, particular in that, way. In that particular kind of TV way that certain kind of pundits love or, or whatever. We've done this and it's, I guess I, we don't need to tell our listeners this, but it's not—it's not even the fairly conservative thing it promises to be on paper. It won't even make you feel good. For God's sake, take yourself, take the world more seriously than this. I don't know how else to say it. And to the—you the, know—the elite libs that are promoting this, I mean, for God's sake, just curl up with your West Wing DVDs and leave the rest of us alone. Keep this out. Keep your fantasies out of the political realm, because the fucking ice caps are melting. For God's sake.
0: Well, I'm glad to hear you speaking out against the elite liberals. Because- Because I know some other guys who also hate the elite. (laughs) But they also hate ideology. And their names are Trey Parker and Matt Stone. That's right. They're
1: back. This has been a long time coming. More
0: than most things.
1: Yeah. I mean, we've been saying for ages, you know, we have to do an Inconvenient Truth and we have to do Team America. I've never seen an Inconvenient Truth. Really? No, I never saw it. You, in fact, have seen Al Gore in person which is more than I can say. Yeah, it. I forgot that I saw that. Did he do an event with like Kathleen Wynn or something? Yeah, yeah, he did. <laughs> what was that, like a year ago? Whole other political era. Oh my God. Um.
0: But yeah, we watched Team America, World Police. Uh-huh. Team
1: America has once again pissed off the entire world after blowing up half of Cairo. And now some Hollywood celebrities are lashing out. Alec Baldwin is head of the Film Actors Guild.
0: The Film Actors Guild believes that what the world needs
1: is compassion, not violence. All that Team America does is create new enemies.
0: Let me explain to you how this works. You see, the corporations finance Team America. And then Team America goes out, and the corporations sit there in their in their corporation buildings and and, and see that they're all corporation-y, and they make money.
1: From the golden age of equal opportunity offenders. Why did we watch this? I mean, really, for no other reason than this was one of the biggest cultural artifacts of kind of the, you know, I guess the golden era of Michael and Us content, kind of the early to mid 2000s, you know, the kind of post 9-11 era.
0: And I'm also assuming that it's one that a lot of you, the listeners, probably loved at the time, Mm -hmm. right?
1: I only saw it once, and I remember laughing, but not actually particularly... Enjoying it. And I never revisited it even though I was pretty partial to kind of the South Park guys at that time
0: I knew there was something off about it at the time And I'm not quite sure I had the vocabulary to articulate what it was And I also found it and still find it a little bit boring
1: yeah, I mean, for an for an action movie, I mean, I think we found it pretty soporific, didn't we? So the movie is a two-pronged
0: satire. On the one hand, it's a parody, a pastiche, I guess, of bad Hollywood action movies, particularly Michael Bay, who is name-checked a couple of times. It already feels like another world because the Michael Bay kind of action movie
1: has sort of receded in favor of the superhero action movie. Mm-hmm. Didn't he do... A superhero movie or two though didn't you do transformers
0: yeah i mean it's a different kind of superhero right, right. i guess it? i'm
1: not up on superhero movies there are there
0: are nuances uh-huh. to, this is to where this is where
1: you and i differ
0: superheroes they have capes they have <laughs> they are, are men but they're also not men mm-hmm. they're not machines mm-hmm. but that's a debate for another day mm-hmm. so there's that aspect of the movie but the movie is also a political satire of partisan america circa 2004 an election year
1: the, the way the way it's Sort of sold itself at the time was that this was yeah this was kind of just a a generalized satire of 2004 America war on terror kind of America. But watching it again, it was really striking how much the politics of the movie lean right as they always do for
0: equal opportunity offenders. Yeah. Quote unquote. The big gimmick of the movie, as everyone listening to this will surely know, is that it is performed entirely with puppets, Mm -hmm, like Thunderbird
1: style puppets.
0: mm -hmm. I think this is a reason why, even though the movie has a lot of laughs you know scattered throughout uh, i find it kind of hard to watch because mm-hmm. it's 98 minutes long which is already 18 minutes longer than it should be yeah and it very meticulously and skillfully goes through all the traditional beats of an action movie mm-hmm. but it's done with puppets so it's ironic and you're sitting there watching it and you're thinking okay, I still have to watch all the beats of a right. traditional I mean, it's, it's action It's
1: ironic, movie. but those beats are still the narrative anchors of the film. So you still got to yeah. sit through it.
0: And it's kind of boring.
1: And and the humor depends on the fact that you already... These things are such cliches, you already know what they are. So that's not really conducive to a very enjoyable movie.
0: You get the joke within the first five minutes, and all these characters, you can't invest yourself in them. No.
1: Because um, they're, they're, they're ironic archetypes from action movies. Uh-huh. A couple of days ago, I was
0: revisiting... Tim and Eric's billion-dollar movie, which is is little loved, and I didn't
1: even particularly like it that much when it came out, but it has aged like fine wine for me. I've never seen it. I, I'm I'm sold on it. You've sold me. I want to I want to see it.
0: I think comparing the two might be instructive because they're both movies that are like nonstop irony, just Teflon. Mm-hmm. You know, they're very cool to the touch but the difference between tim and eric on the one hand and matt and trey on the other is i think there's a, gr- a great deal more empathy in the worldview of tim and eric so there's a scene in tim and eric's billion dollar movie where you know without getting too much into it they end up buying a shopping mall and taking it over and and you know it's not going to be funny when i describe it but there's a scene where they're, they're, they're going around talking to the business owners and they're at one business and uh, the owner has a son and Tim Heidecker says, oh oh come here is this is this your boy? do you mind if I borrow him for a bit um, uh, Hey, uh, you're a nice boy why, why don't you call me daddy uh, and they then says uh, what do you think what do you think about that why don't you call him uncle uh, So he basically just takes over this right. kid and he can because he owns the mall right In both Matt and Trey's world and Tim and Eric's world, like the world is shit. Mm-hmm. Tim and Eric actually care about the human misery of this shit world. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't think Matt and Trey do. The only things that Matt and Trey hate are cliché and sincerity. Mm-hmm. In this movie, there are three, I guess, groups, mm-hmm. which the movie describes. And, three three polarities. <laughs> uh, pardon my French. Uh, dicks, pussies, and assholes. Mm-hmm. The dicks are Team America, this extra-legal crime-fighting organization. They're, they're
1: the war on terror, basically. Yeah. The pussies are... liberal america hollywood
0: but particularly hollywood there's a group the film actors guild Mm -hmm. figure out what that acronym is Mm -hmm. which includes such red hot targets as (laughs) alec baldwin susan sarandon tim robbins sean Penn. and
1: no notice marxist noted marxist revolutionary helen hunt it makes an appearance
0: very strange because you know this group it's it's a mix between people who were vocal iraq war opponents and other people like like Samuel L. Jackson
1: is in there. Is, was he,
0: I, is, is, is he a notable Hollywood lib? I, I mean, don't know. But well,
1: as you pointed out, it's pretty much like an American Carol style conservatism. It's like that type of take on Hollywood. Just this caricature of Hollywood is this super left, anti-corporate, anti-imperialist you know imperialist kind of place, which is a Hollywood that doesn't really exist and the movie's line of attack on hollywood is that they hear
0: vague talking points about global warming and the corporations and Mm -hmm. war and
1: they're trend hoppers basically right right i mean you know we talked about this in the south park episodes you know when matt stone and trey parker are funny it's when they're just doing like poop jokes right that's what they're funny at that's what they're good at there's moments in this movie that are funny in that way but like none of the political what's supposed to be Mm -hmm. the political satire is funny what, what troubles them about the world isn't particularly deep or interesting. You know, they're, they're not they're not angry about any particular injustice. Mm-hmm. What annoys them is that there are these annoying people and there are these annoying culture wars, which God, we're just so sick of. I mean, you even pointed out the sort of scene near the beginning where they're going to see like, it's rent, but it's called lease or something. And it's kind of a bad, you know, parody of, of, of rent. There's a trope there that I think is something we've observed before where the, the film is sort of implicitly saying like, ah, you know, uh, those New York gays and special interest groups or something like that, you know, which I think came up in Primary Colors and came up in a few other films we've watched.
0: And, you know, Matt and Trey aren't enough ideologues to really... To- Fully take that position right. so they're you know they're, they're not homophobic but what they hate are these kind of uh lib pseudo sophisticated audiences who go see these musicals right. and scratch their chins right right
1: they hate they, what they hate is any kind of social concern uh-huh. you know social concern is is annoying and the trouble with that well there are many problems with that but the trouble with that in the context of this movie is that the two poles are u.s imperial state and a bunch of people they find kind of annoying And they're totally blasé about... The film is sort of very weakly, you know, gesturing in a vague satire of kind of... American destruction, American rot destruction abroad. But because not, we
0: see Team America like blow up the Eiffel
1: Tower. Right, but and, they don't they don't really care about that. Do well, they?
0: because if they actually cared about the human cost of the war on terror, they would not equate it with Alec Baldwin being a bit annoying.
1: No, and and, and the arc of the film is that the Film Actors Guild partners up with North Korea. Who are the third polarity? The, who are the other part of the axis of evil? They're uh, the assholes, the, the assholes. And the Film Actors Guild partners with Kim Jong-il, if the movie has politics, that's what they are. It's like Hollywood is complicit in... You know, it's it's like McCarthyist, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's not... Because Hollywood hates America and they think... they they... Yeah.
0: Montre basically support the war on terror.
1: I mean, it's not really McCarthyist because it's it's refusing to actually commit to that. As you said, in a way, the problem with the film is that it's not right-wing enough. Like, it won't just commit to the bit, you know? It's sort of trying to have it multiple ways. And at the end, when there's the stupid monologue, sort of bringing the dicks, pussies, and assholes kind of cosmology together... On which the film the whole film hangs there's this token gesture to like sometimes the the dicks go too far or whatever and, because dicks yeah. fuck
0: assholes but they also fuck pussies Ugh. and they can go too far in both directions and if they're if they're fucking too much
1: they need the pussies to rein them in that's i'm the,
0: sorry to have to soil your it's ears it's so dumb this. that's
1: the that's the only concession to the idea that, that an anti-war position of some kind is not inherently bad it's just inherently bad all the times that people actually do it <laughs> yeah
0: so i don't know like this to me is why matt and trey's worldview is so much less compelling than tim and eric you know tim and eric look at the world and they say why is our culture so soul destroying why are our lives so miserable why can't it be better than this yeah and you know i guess matt and trey also hate the culture matt and trey hate the culture only in relation to like certain annoying libs and certain bad hollywood action movies there's no kind of broader holistic analysis
1: of it no i mean then they think i mean as as with i think we watched the uh did we watch the i'm a little bit country episode way back i think we did because you know this kind of reminds me of that right Mm -hmm. where again there's they're annoyed by they think there's cultural tribalism and, and that annoys them. They think kind of the affectations that come along with being a red state person or a blue state person are annoying, but their analysis doesn't really go beyond that. And sometimes even kind of converges with like the most like milquetoast centrist lib stuff about mm. like. Let's just put all this stuff aside and work together. The dicks and the pussies. In, in, the, in the interest of orthodoxy and power. To work, and, yeah. The
0: dicks and the pussies need to work together because they are the yin and the yang. Yeah. And, and one completes the other somehow.
1: Yeah, that's right. Like the part of the country that's a little bit rock and roll and the part that's a little bit country are, are symbiotic. The movie doesn't seem to doubt that there is a terrorist
0: threat, right? Well, it's, like it's sort of kidding not kidding, you well, know. Well, I
1: mean it's it's just ambivalent about like it it's a very it's a very provincial kind of movie. It, it doesn't have geopolitics, you know right. what I mean? Which like is a ridiculous thing to say about a movie that has a puppet sex scene, but it is it is contending to be a political satire and it, there's no real world view at play here. And when and the parts in the Middle East as the film just refers mm. to it very generally are pretty racist. I mean, it's just as you said there's like a sort of kidding not kidding but it's just what is the satiric agenda right it's just it's just it's a few years after 9-11 and they felt perfectly fine representing the muslim world this way because they don't they don't care
0: well there's a part of them that's kind of like uh this is how stereotypical they would be in a hollywood action movie But it's not like it's actually outraged by that. It's like, isn't it kind of fun that this is how stereotypical they'd be in a Hollywood action movie? This is the part of Hollywood action movies they're okay with.
1: Right, and they're literally just, when they talk, when the Arab characters talk, they just say, like, Durka Durka Muhammad Jihad. It's actually that dumb.
0: And, you know, the one part of the movie that we're actually supposed to kind of take seriously, again, the way it's delivered is in that kidding, not kidding sort of way, but is the Dick's Pussies and Asshole Speech. And if you take it seriously, it takes as a given that there is a terrorist threat Mm. and that you need people like Team America or George W. Bush, you know, uh, ruthless.
1: Well, there's uh, like a terror- hard-headed there's people. A, the ter- there's a terrorist threat in the sense that the Bush administration implied there's a terrorist threat, which is that yeah. there's like a global axis of evil that hates freedom and wants to destroy America. And unless we do, unless we adopt a policy of endless war and extrajudicial killing and torture, then we can't do anything about that.
0: And their snide tone doesn't change the fact that that is the assumption that the movie is operating under.
1: Anyway, I think we will probably return to Matt and Trey again at some point. Hopefully, with something we find a little funnier. I know there's been on the Patreon, some people have been talking about, uh, you know, some of the the latest seasons of South Park, which are kind of stylistically very different, which are trying to be. I think explicitly political in a way that some of the earlier seasons weren't.
0: I keep hearing that they apologized to Al Gore for the ManBearPig episode. Yeah, that's again, I don't know
1: what to, you know, make of any of that. I'm not up on South Park because, you know, it's not not 2006 and we're not in Kansas anymore. But um, that sounds interesting to investigate and I'm sure we'll get around to it at some point. But uh, in conclusion, Team America is still not very good. We're dicks. We're reckless, arrogant, stupid dicks. And the Film Actors Guild are pussies. And Kim Jong-Il is an asshole. Pussies don't like dicks. Because pussies get fucked by dicks. But dicks also fuck assholes. Assholes who just want to shit on everything. Pussies may think they can deal with assholes their way. But the only thing that can fuck an asshole is a dick with some balls. The problem with dicks is that sometimes they fuck too much, or fuck when it isn't appropriate. Yes, Gary, yes. And it takes a pussy to show him that.
0: Luke and I were talking about Hollywood, of course, uh, because there, there were uh, lots of times watching the movie when you know when we could kind of tune out
1: a little bit. <laughs> That's not true. We were completely focused because we're professionals, and we definitely weren't talking about how well Alec Baldwin actually does suck. He he sucks, but
0: like not for the reasons no no they hate that... him for
1: the they hate him for the wrong reasons, don't they? Also, isn't
0: it kind of funny, you know, not to get back into Team America too much, but (laughs) it's like an American Carol where they really do love watching these Hollywood libs get hurt. Yeah. Like the movie. Telen
1: Hunt gets cut in half yeah uh, they, they Tim took... Robbins gets
0: like burnt to a crisp and and this was something else you know in An American Carol the Michael Moore character in that movie was constantly getting like hit with bricks and falling down yeah. the stairs but like there's there's sadism you know <laughs> anyway so we were talking about uh, movie stars in Hollywood and uh, for some reason uh, everyone's favorite star you know the, the, the biggest name at the moment Sean Connery <laughs> came up
1: <laughs> well it's because it's because I went to see that movie Zardoz which is like weird stone heads in a post-apocalyptic future and sean connery kind of walking around in like a thong right i've actually never seen you you should see it it's 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 off the wall it's it's crazy if it has any kind of politics it's sort of a weird reactionary anti-feminist politics but interesting it is it is sort of just like a surrealist acid trip of a movie doesn't really work it's got tremendous ambition but it's so weird that it is It is highly worth seeing. And I, I saw it at the Royal where, you know, there's kind of a culture of like, you know, laughing a lot. And it's, you know, it's a big kind of group experience. And uh, people had such a good time where everyone was just laughing together. And
0: I've been meaning to see it forever. I mean, I, I you know, we've all seen that picture of Sean Connery in his little red diaper yeah. or whatever it is. And I don't know, maybe I've always seen that picture and felt like I'd seen the movie. Yeah. Uh, but clearly there's much no, there's more to there's it. a there's a lot there's a lot going on i was reminded that sean connery has an amazing official website seanconnery.com it's like it's or, like the
1: it's like the space jam website or the or the like dole kemp website or whatever that's still up it hasn't been
0: updated in a while but you know you say that sean has an anti-feminist streak
1: in his in his you, you've given her the last word she's not <laughs> happy with the last word
0: you know, if you if, guys, if you haven't watched <laughs> well, that interview with Sean Connery in the '60s when he's talking about is how, it is it that old or is it more recent? I think it it has to be that old. Well, I mean, it's appalling no matter what the decade. It, but like he, it, it's Sean talking about times when it's okay to beat your wife to, to
1: slap to slap a woman. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's appalling. And,
0: he's, ta- and he, he's talking about it like with the same inflections that he would deliver a line as James Bond. It, you yeah, know, with that pseudo suave. <laughs> My other favorite thing that Sean Connery's ever said was in the movie Goldfinger, when he says, that's like listening to the Beatles without earmuffs. <laughs> anyway, there's a great part on Sean Connery's website, which is devoted to his wife's online art gallery. French-born artist Michelin Rockabrun Connery, probably pronouncing that wrong, enjoys the ritual of painting and uses her art as an outlet of expression and self-fulfillment, we are grateful to Michelin for allowing us to show some of her work on this site and inviting you to peruse and enjoy. And there's there's a self-portrait here of her looking at her various canvases. I wish you guys could see it.
1: What's the what's the address so people can follow folks can follow along at home.
0: It's Seanconnery.com. You can't miss it. And when you click on the part that is Michelin's gallery, the first painting you see is this awesome painting of Sean like sitting by a lake and he's wearing he looks like gold member he's wearing (laughs) this bright gold house coat which is open down to his navel and he's got this this rug of chest hair underneath
1: just make a shrine to that in your apartment
0: and it says michelle Rockabrun connery's art again i'm sure i pronounced that wrong is filled with le bonheur de vivre Her vibrant, realist style, which she has developed since the age of 23, is well-suited to recording her varied impressions of family and friends, city streets, and vacation hideaways, leisure activities, and serene moments of contemplation. Her paintings have a directness and informality that seems to parallel the way she lives her life. In the texture of her days and the empathetic response to her subjects, (laughs) she reveals her true talent.
1: Put, put David I, Brent as refreshingly <laughs> relaxed for a man with such responsibility. I actually think it's like kind of sweet. Yeah, you know? it's nice.
0: Um, you know, her paintings aren't that bad. Yeah. I they, mean, they're, they're tacky I shit. Mean, they're awful. They're awful. But, you know, technically, I, they're better than Jim Carrey's I mean, paintings. I mean, I, I yeah. <laughs> They're better than uh, uh, Val Kilmer's paintings. And uh, I think they're better than, um, oh God, who are some other They're, be, they're better
1: than James Franco's prose. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> to me, there's nothing funnier than, than rich people who just kind of have no filter anymore who have so much privilege that no matter what they do people will say it's good yeah so you know it's like james franco uh publishing his like shitty book reviews that read like sort of bad high school papers in vice and just kind of just getting away with it can we talk about james franco
0: for a little bit because he had a series (laughs) of i guess journalistic projects every one of which was a winner for vice in addition to his you know book reviews he started but, but didn't get too far into a column where he would do it in the voice of his character from the movie Spring Breakers. One of the articles was a review of Faulkner's The Sound and the Fury. Mm-hmm. And the headline was, Them Sounds is Furious. Uh, and also, for IndieWire, James Franco wrote a column called James and Samaj. Which is James Spell backwards? Where he would
1: interview himself about uh, classic Hollywood films. People never believe you when you you post James Franco's prose. Be like, this is how James Franco writes. So, like, guy, whoa, whoa, he's got he's got a hundred master's degrees in creative writing. Okay,
0: Luke was reminding me uh, also of this Tumblr blog uh, started by someone we know called Undergrad Franco. Uh, where they just like took James Franco's prose for Vice and marked it as if it was an undergrad paper. It works so fucking well. There's a good essay here about Baz Luhrmann's The Great Gatsby, where this is a sample paragraph. The critics who've ravaged the film for not being loyal to the book are hypocrites. These people make their living doing readings and critiques of texts in order to generate theories of varying levels of competency or simply to make a living. Luhrmann's film is his reading and adaptation of a text, his critique, if you will. Would anyone object to a production of Hamlet in outer space? Not as much as they object to the Gatsby adaptation, apparently. (laughs) Maybe that's because Gatsby is so much about a time and a place, while Shakespeare, in my mind, is more about universal ideas, ideals, and feelings. Luhrmann needed to breathe life into the ephemera and aura of the 20s, and that is just what he succeeded at. Now, I think I, like kind of like if you squint a it you can kind of see the point that he's doing which is that like
1: james is a committed postmodernist. <laughs> yeah like like to
0: to free the, the great gatsby from the mustiness of history he had to mm-hmm. modernize it uh-huh it's, it's very badly communicated also
1: isn't? by by the way i mean it, that is a defensive movie i mean okay that's like every time every high school english class where you got to do shakespeare that's the idea everyone has it's like what if we did it, you know, modern? Right. Which is what Boslerman literally did with Romeo and Juliet. But he also
0: went after the critic, the the critics, you know, who apparently <laughs> he's, obje- a, he's supposedly
1: real, objected to this he's approach. A, he's a real
0: populist, is James <laughs> or Samaj, as the case may be. Um, anyway, uh, look, we can we can sit here all day and talk about the hilarious dilettantish projects of the Idle Rich, uh, but we should probably uh, leave you for the time being. But something I should
1: also say is that. Uh, we have this Patreon. <laughs> we are so Perhaps bad. At, you've heard of it. We are so bad at doing this. The, the business side of the show is something we we constantly neglect. I think uh, we
0: say that we're bad at it too much. Uh but we I think, are bad at it. Yeah, but I think now we have to project a more positive.
1: <laughs> Let's project confidence. Sorry. I, I think we well, I'm new at this thing of being a small business owner. So uh, we
0: can't expect people to invest in us if they think we're bad. <laughs> so uh, we're going right ahead, we're actually really good at the business side. And we're so good that in fact uh, we have a whole bunch of content on the Patreon right now. The last episode was on Charlie Chaplin's Red Scare satire, A King in New York. Before that, a fascinating documentary called Spin about the election year of 1992 and various footage from news broadcasts that you weren't supposed to see.
1: Oh yeah, that was fun. Yeah, we also, we kind of stick just extra extra bonus stuff up on there every so often. So uh, yeah, if you just want to hear us talk some more, you can join us in the Patreon. If you want to stick with the free apps, that's fine. Um, one little thing you can do for us if you do like the free apps is uh, you can rate them on your you know podcast app, uh, you can give them a thumbs up, whatever. I don't exactly know how the algorithms work, but that is kind of uh, how a lot of people find out about podcasts when they're kind of surfing on their apps or whatever. So if you could give us a rating, uh, hopefully a good one, we'd appreciate it.
0: And uh, Patreon subscribers, there will be a new episode next week, perhaps some more extra bonus content this month. Why not? Yeah, definitely. But one thing we've learned about Team America is, you know, as listeners know, I'm uh, the right wing host of the show, and we're aggressive and messy. But the left wing of the show, represented by Luke, they're wimps, uh, but when right and left come together, they can create something bigger than the sum of themselves, and that is this podcast. That's
1: right. A bird needs both wings to fly, folks. Now watch this drive.